0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Dr. Gabor Mate, in his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, which he wrote with his son Daniel, argues that what is defined as normal in a consumer society is at war with basic human needs. The engine of capitalism defined by the cult of the self thrives on the fostering of psychological and physical chronic disorders, including high blood pressure, diabetes, anxiety, depression, addictions, and suicide. It rewards the core traits of psychopaths, superficial charm, grandiosity, and self-importance, a need for constant stimulation, a penchant for lying, deception, and manipulation, and the inability to feel remorse or guilt. Personal style and personal advancement are mistaken for individualism, equated falsely with democratic equality. We have a right in the cult of the self to get whatever we desire. We can do anything, even belittle and destroy those around us, including our friends, to make money, to be happy, and to become famous. Once fame and wealth are achieved, they become their own justification, their own morality. How one gets there is irrelevant. The consequence of this dark ethic Dr. Mate illustrates plays out on our bodies, severely damaging our psyches and pushing us towards individual and social self-annihilation. Joining me to discuss his new book is Dr. Gabor Mate, who has written several best-selling books, including... In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, and Scattered Minds, The Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder. So I said before we went on the air, this is a book that could have easily been three or four books, so your readers are, uh, are uh, rewarded. Um, you write uh, that uh, most of us are in the grip of what you call a distant past, a kind of psycho-emotional time warp that prevents us from inhabiting the present moment. This is what the psychotherapist Peter Levine calls the tyranny of the past. Can you explain this process?
1: Yes. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on your broadcast. In my own life, um, coming to reflect on my many of my behaviors, I've had to realize that often I wasn't reacting to the present. I was reacting to some interpretation on the present based on old traumatic programming from my early childhood. So often when I get upset, say my relationship with my spouse, the degree of upset is not related to anything that's occurring right now, but it's some dark pain or wound, which is what trauma means, based on a sense of being rejected or not being loved or not being accepted when I was a very young infant. And so that's what Peter means by the eternity, of the past, that, that the past colors are, the Buddha said once that with our minds, we basically create the world. But what it didn't say is that before with our minds, we create the world, the world creates our minds. So that the mind, and in fact, the very brain itself, including the physiology of the brain, is programmed very early in childhood by our earliest relationships with our caregivers, beginning in utero. And those imprints govern a lot of our behaviors, even into adulthood.
0: Well, you write about it. One of the things I liked about the book was its honesty. You give voice to uh, your wife and your son and are quite frank and, I think, courageous about your own failings. As a father, we all have them. It's painful to confront that we failed in some way those uh, we love. Um, and I, I wondered if you could just, uh, for people who don't know your story, just tell us quickly what that trauma, it is in the book, but what that trauma that you endured was.
1: So in a large historical context, the trauma was that I was born in January 1944 in Budapest, two months before the Nazis occupied Hungary, which is when the genocide began, uh, two months after I was born. now The day after the Germans marched into Budapest, my mother phoned the pediatrician. I was two months of age. And she said, would you please come and see Gabor because he's crying all the time. And the doctor said, of course that will come, but I should tell you, all my Jewish babies are crying. So that infants, and this is true, you don't have to on genocide for this. Infants absorb the stresses of their parents, and that has an impact on their nervous systems. So I spent the first year under predictably difficult, even life-threatening circumstances, which culminated with my mother giving me to a total stranger in the street in Budapest because where we were living, I would not have survived. So I didn't see her for five or six weeks. Of course, an infant can only abandon uh, experience that as an abandonment. And <clears throat> who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not lovable, somebody who's not wanted. So my sense of self, on a deep unconscious level, was somebody who's not lovable, who's not wanted. And that then leads to all kinds of behaviors in adulthood. Um, not to mention that for the whole year, I'm absorbing the stresses and terrors of my mother, which infants and children being narcissistic in the sense that they think it's all about them. Naturally, I think she's suffering so much, it must be my fault. So there's this is tremendous sense of guilt and shame that comes with trauma. It does not take historical trauma of those proportions. It doesn't take war or genocide. In a diary entry, my mother described when I'm two weeks old, before there were Nazis, before the Germans occupied Hungary, just how she was following doctor's orders not to pick me up and feed me when I was asking for it. Because then the ethic was you feed on schedule, not on the child's demand. That itself is a trauma. But what message do I get as a two-week-old, that my needs aren't important, that I'm alone, that the person who loves me doesn't care enough about me to pick me up. And that kind of trauma is very common in all societies. So I just don't want to create the impression that trauma is only under dramatic circumstances such as I endured as an infant.
0: Well, you are writing the book about your mother's instincts so that she didn't like it. And, and of course, I think much of your book is a kind of celebration or holding up those instincts against uh, modern medicine or modern uh, psychotherapy. Uh, the psychiatrist uh, Basil, uh, van de Kolk B- in. Uh, Bessel, if I may Bessel, say. excuse me. Yes, yeah. Bessel Van de Kolk in uh, The Body Keep Score. He writes that trauma is when we are not seen and known. And you build on this idea uh, that trauma is a fracturing of the self, of one's relationship to the world. You define this fracturing as the essence of trauma. What do you mean by fracturing of the self and how does this fracturing work?
1: Well, so. Trauma means wound, uh, wounding is psychic wound. And you can wound people in two major ways, you might say, by doing terrible things to them, such as the abuse that many people endure in childhood, whether in home or in school. Um, But the other way you can hurt people is just not to meet their needs. Now, one of the essential needs of human children, I mean, I'm talking about essential need in the sense that if it's not met, the child suffers. Uh, is, is to be seen and accepted for exactly who they are. Now, in Bessel's words, if you're not seen, that hurts you. Because a, child's develop, a child develops their self-image, their self-concept, based on how he's seen and treated by the al- adults around them. If the adults themselves are too limited, too stressed, too traumatized, too preoccupied to see the child in the child's fullness with all their emotions, the child will develop a very limited sense of themselves. So that's part of that fracturing. Um, first of all, first of all, secondly, when you're not being seen or worse, if you're being hurt or abused, it's just too painful to be in your own body and to experience your own emotions. So literally as a survival adaptation, quite unconsciously, the child will cut off their sense of feeling, their their gut feelings, and they even disconnect from their bodies. So that disconnection and fracturing the self, which is the essence of trauma, happens if you're not seen and accepted just who you are, even more so if you're if you're hurt.
0: You've long argued that addiction is an outcome of childhood trauma. Uh, you, you say this is based on shame, a shame-based view of ourselves, uh, a kind of negative self-perception, a perception, a loss of compassion for oneself. Uh, you write, "I'm quoting: the more severe the trauma, the more total that loss." Can you talk about? the loss and its effects.
1: Sure. So for 12 years, I worked as a physician in Vancouver's downtown east side, which is, I don't know if you've ever been here, Chris. I have, I have. And I have
0: gone down to the east side.
1: Yeah, so it's shocking for people coming from even from the ghettos in the United States. It's it's North, North America's most concentrated area of drug use. And in 12 years I worked down there, I never met a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child and all the men had been severely abused, sometimes sexually, sometimes in other ways, neglected and so on. Not by accident, 30% of our clients down there were indigenous First Nations Canadians. They make up 5% of the population. They're also the most traumatized segment of the Canadian population. A shocking 50% of the women in jail in our country are indigenous, they make up 5% of the female population. So. What that trauma does is it hollows out the self because again, it's too painful to be connected to the self and that pain will break through and there's a sense of emptiness because the sense of fulfillment as a human being needs to come from within. It needs to come from an embrace of oneself as one is. But when it's treated that badly, one ends up rejecting oneself as the flawed hurt, not hurt, as a flawed deficient Individual, so underneath all tra- all trauma uh, is a is a shame based view of oneself, and that shame is searing. Now, all addictions are an attempts to escape from pain. So, I don't care if you're addicted to gambling or sex or shopping or the internet or self-cutting or eating or drugs or alcohol. It's all about soothing the pain of that shame, soothing the pain of what you endured, and when that pain breaks through, you have to soothe the pain by some addictive behavior. So that's what I meant there. So underneath addiction, people think that they're ashamed of themselves because they're addicted. It's at least as much the other way around. They're addicted because they're so ashamed of
0: themselves. Well, you write about how consumer society plays on this. Uh, You you say that uh, if trauma entails a disconnection from the self, then it makes sense to say that we are being collectively flooded with influences that both exploit and reinforce this trauma. These are your words, work pressures, multitasking, social media news updates, uh, multiplicities of entertainment sources. Uh, These all induce us to become lost in our thoughts, frantic activities, gadgets, meaningless conversations. We're caught up in pursuits of all kinds that draw us on, not because they are necessary or inspiring or uplifting, or because they enrich or add meaning in our lives, to our lives, but simply because they obliterate the present. Those are your words. So that passage reminded me of the lines from W.H. Auden's poem, September 1st, uh, 1939, Faces along the bar cling to the average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this furniture, make this Ford assume the furniture of home. Least we should see where we are. Lost in a Haunted Wood, Children Afraid of the Night, Who Have Never Been Happy or Good.
1: I should have just published the book with that poem in it and forgot everything else. Because <laughs> he, he says it all, you know. Yeah. Um, well, there are two classes of people who confuse their, two large classes of people who confuse their desires with their needs. One of them is young children. When they want something, they think they need it. And they're desperate if they don't get it. In the the hands of healthy adults, one learns that needs are not the same as desires. The other class of people who confuse their desires with their needs, of course, are addicts of all kinds. I need to go shopping. I need to have a drink. You know, these aren't needs, these are desires. Uh, But consumer society is based on making addicts out of everybody. To confuse our our desires with our needs, it's this, as, as the um, Catholic monk, whose work I'm sure you're familiar with, Thomas Merton said, "You know, the whole society is geared to um, raising our knee, our desires to this fever pitch, so that we can be consuming the products of the film studios and and all the all the factories. And and so, whole consumerism is based on creating false needs. And uh, if, if we weren't at this fever pitch of desire all the time." We wouldn't buy all the stuff that we buy. Nor would we be, uh, chi- uh, you know, coasting on the internet to fill every moment because we're so empty and we're so afraid of ourselves that we have to uh, distract ourselves from our own presence by whatever it means. Now, if you look on the internet, or on YouTube, for example, what gets <laughs> seen by millions? There's uh, recently Eli Manning, the former New York Times, New, New, uh, New York. Jets was it? No, Giants. Um, A quarterback went to this college and he uh, pretended to be some somebody he wasn't. Then you know, it doesn't matter. It's trivial. Eleven million views in three weeks. No. How much does the average person? So the average person in America knows a whole lot about what quarterbacking strategy the Denver Broncos or the you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers should be pursuing and there's big discussions about this. What does it matter to anybody? But ask ask, ask the average American or Canadian to to string two intelligent sentences together about the history of Afghanistan or the history of Ukraine or even about climate change. They're not able to do it. So the whole society is designed, the whole culture is designed to draw our attention away from and make us believe of what's important and make us believe that what's trivial is actually essential and that's both a consumer strategy but it's also a propaganda imperative
0: well you're right about the dopamine hits and and this a constant need because you get a high but then you fall into a low and you get you need another hit and that consumer society depends on this uh, pleasure principle if we want to Freud. Uh, uh, but in, in fact, of course, what makes us content, uh, what provides joy, uh, is outside of that kind of self-destructive behavior.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's, um, this society is perfectly, I would say, designed, but it's not actually designed. I mean, yes, you and I know, it's not that there aren't conspiracies at the top and in all aspects of corporate life. But the whole thing is not a conspiracy as such it's it's like almost a self-organizing um organism that on the one hand deprives of our genuine needs as children and as young people so that we create false needs to which you can cater so society both creates these false needs and then creates an economy that caters to them in fact the economy couldn't survive is the way it is if it wasn't based on false needs so it's a, it's a perfect mechanism and it couldn't have been designed better to sustain itself at, at the cost of human health of course and human life even
0: i want to talk on about passing on trauma That's something that i've had to deal with uh, that when we don't resolve that trauma you write in ourselves uh, you say the home becomes a place where we unwittingly recreate scenarios reminiscent of those that wounded us uh, when we were small. Can you talk about how this trauma is passed down?
1: You know, I'm reminded of a statement of Primo Levi. I don't know if you've read Primo Levi, Oh, of but course. He, yeah. He's one of the great writers, one of the very, very few great writers actually <clears throat> on, the, on the genocide. He wasn't the, somebody who sentimentalized anything. And he said at some point in one of his books, um, the lesson that we create in our homes, the same conditions as existed in the camps. And that may seem like a shocking statement, because how can you possibly compare the two? But in terms of wounding children, you, again, you don't need those dramatic historical circumstances. So I talked about my own formative year, the first year of my life, in the sense that I got I wasn't lovable and wanted. Well, the way I compensate for that, in part, was to go to medical school, because when you go to medical school, um, you get a sense of self-importance, and it's very traumatic to go to medical school, but you come out of it with a lot of power and a lot of knowledge that makes you indispensable to the world, and now they're gonna want you all the time. And the beeper's always going. Every time the beeper goes, you get a dopamine hit. Oh, they want me. I'm so important. But it's addictive, because it never fills the emptiness inside. So, I'm a workaholic physician, You know, and I'm carrying my depressions and anxieties and so on, Uh, but not on the job. They come out at home. Now what message do my kids get when daddy's not around because he's always busy looking after other people or when he is home, he's kind of depressed and and morose. Same message I got, that they're not wanted. And this is a middle-class Vancouver, British Columbia, home in a leafy, lovely neighborhood. You know, no circumstances of abuse or deprivation or war. And yet my children are getting the same message I got. You know, so this is how we pass it on unwittingly. And not because we don't love our kids and not because we don't do our best, but simply because our best is constrained and informed by our own unresolved trauma. And most of us, or many of us, have children when we're very young before we actually have resolved or even recognized our traumas.
0: Yes. I mean, it was something I've dealt with. I remember helping my kids build a gingerbread house when they were little, and then just without thinking, I said, let's play Bosnia and burn it down. Um, You say that all illnesses, if not psychosomatic in origin, have psychosomatic components. And there are long passages in the book where you tie trauma of individuals, often childhood trauma, to a variety of diseases. Um, you argue that confronting the underlying trauma often mitigates and even at times eradicates the disease. Stress, you say, may disable our immune systems, capacity to control and eliminate malignancy. It, that's a big topic, and people are going to have to buy the book, which they should do. But can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, I've discussed this in a previous book of mine, which you mentioned when the body says no, but this is mm-hmm. was- what's this is what's so frustrating, Chris, is that I'm talking here not about conjecture or intuition. I'm talking about science. So, in eighteen in eighteen sixties or seventies, whenever it was, Jean Marie Jean Martin Charcot, the French neurologist, who first described um, multiple sclerosis, said that this is a stress-driven disease. Stress-driven disease. James Paget, a British surgeon, around the same time, talked about breast cancer in women and and how it's inescapable to link between emotions and breast cancer. Sir William Osler, one of the founding physicians at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, said in the 1890s, I think, that rheumatoid arthritis was a stress-driven disease. Without going into, in in, in 1938, a great uh, lecturer at Harvard, a physician whose name is still honored at Harvard in a research day named after him, Dr. Soma Weiss, myself, like myself from Hungary, He said that emotional factors are at least as important in the causation of illness as physical ones, and should be at least as important in the treatment. This lecture was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Now, they had no science to back it up. They just had their intuition. Since then, we've had 80 years of science showing the relationship between emotions and, and physiology because you can't separate the mind from the body, scientifically speaking. You cannot separate the mind from the body, and the emotional apparatus is part and parcel of the same system that runs the immune apparatus as well. So when I say psychosomatic, I'm not meaning imagined. I'm meaning literally the oneness of psyche and soma, the the mind and the emotional circuits of the body and the brain with the physiology of the rest of the body. So-
0: Is this what you mean by neurogenic inflammation?
1: Well, inflammation simply means that the nervous system can trigger inflammation in the body, and inflammation, and, and and of course, the nervous system is easy to demonstrate. is very much influenced by emotions. I mean, you have a certain emotional state, your nervous system changes by definition, and so that, and that can initiate inflammation in the body. For a recent study, uh, three weeks ago, showed that a single episode of racism will instigate inflammation in the body and suppress the immune system, so that. Everything is psychosomatic in that sense, not in the sense of imagined, but that the psyche is influencing the soma because they're one system. Long-term stress, long-term release of stress hormones like cortisol suppresses the immune system, makes it less able to resist malignant transformation, and also can turn the immune system against oneself so that one has more of a chance of developing autoimmune disease, which, not surprisingly, who's most prone for? Women of color, because a they're women, so they're more stressed for gender reasons, and of color because they're more stressed because of racial, 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 racist reasons. So the more um, intersection there is of gender and race, the more autoimmune disease you have. It's strict science, and the frustrating part of it is the average medical student doesn't get a single lecture on any of this stuff, despite the voluminous science. It's incredible the gap between science and medical practice.
0: On pages 101 and 102, you draw up a list of personality features that you say are most often present uh, in people with chronic illnesses. What are the traits, and why do so many chronically ill people have those traits?
1: Yes. So in family practice, uh, which I pursued for 22 years, I think, Senova, which I also was the medical coordinator of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital, I noticed that who got sick and who didn't wasn't accidental. And as a family physician, I did have an advantage over my specialist colleagues, and I knew my patients as people. I knew them before they got sick. I knew them in their families of origin. I knew them in their multi-generational family context. So I began to notice that people that developed chronic illness had certain character traits. These were an automatic regard for the emotional needs of others while ignoring their own. Um, a rigid identification with duty, role and responsibility. So in other words, their duty out in the world, their responsibility out there rather than who they were as individuals. Uh, a repression of healthy anger, healthy anger is a distinction between rage and unhealthy and healthy anger. And finally, um, Two fatal beliefs that one is responsible for other people feel and one must never disappoint anybody Now, these traits. It's not again Fancy for how they lead to illness because they all impose tremendous stress on individual. I mean if you've ever been angry And if you know what a perturbation of the nervous system and the viscera anger involves imagine not feeling anger what? energetic demand it is to repress the anger so much so you don't even feel it. So you're one of these really nice people that never gets angry. It's a tremendous um, diversion of body energy that wears on the immune system and the nervous system. So it's that, it's that long-term stress then that leads to the illness. Not these traits cause the illness, but these traits make you much more prone to be stressed without even you knowing it. And therefore, you're more prone to illness. It's a very straightforward correlation.
0: I see that play out in the prison because my students in the prison cannot express anger to the guards yeah and you have uh, it's just an epidemic diabetes hypertension yeah uh, heart disease everything because of course they if they express that anger they're immediately punished yeah, um,
1: yeah and the, the, no wonder you see like, like like James Baldwin once said I think that to be an American black is to be a constant state of suppressed anger yes. And and the question is what to do with that anger. It's no wonder that Black American males have a much higher risk of high blood pressure. It's got nothing to do with genetics. Their genetic relatives in Africa do not have the same risk. It has to do with uh, the the stress of being American Black and not being allowed to be angry.
0: I want to talk about the tension or the clash between uh, what you call two essential needs, attachment and often. You call this ground zero for the most widespread form of trauma in our society. Can you explain that idea?
1: Sure. So attachment is simply the drive to be close to somebody. For, it's, 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 it's a biological, instinctive, psychological drive that's part of our evolutionary heritage. And we share that with other mammals because without attachment, uh, the drive to be close between parent and infant, no mammalian infant would survive. So we're simply wired for it. And especially the young child is wired to attach, because without that attachment, there's just no life, period. Now, we also have another need as well, which is what I call authenticity, and that comes from the word auto for the self, and uh, being in touch with our feelings, knowing who what we feel and being able to act on that. Now. Don't forget, we evolved out there in nature for millions of years, and for hundreds of thousands of years until a blink of an eye ago in human, even in existence of our own species, we lived out in nature. How long does any creature survive in nature if they're not in touch with their gut feelings? And that's what I mean by authenticity. is being connection with our bodies and our emotions. However, according to much of the toxic parenting advice that is doled out, The Tiger Mom and and Emily Oster's uh, Parenting by the Numbers, you know, it's it's designed to teach parents to ignore their parenting instincts. And if a child shows up angry, for example, they should be made to sit by themselves so they come back to normal, according to a very famous psychologist who will will blessedly remain unnamed in this program. But he's Canadian. He's named in your
0: book, isn't he? (laughs) His name's in my book, and he says that
1: an angry child should be made to sit by themselves until they come back to normal. So anger in a child is not normal. I got news for that, psychologist. Anger is built into our brain as one of our essential brain circuits because it's an important boundary defense. Now, if a child gets the message, or Hillary Clinton, who I talk about, who runs into her mother's home at age four, seeking protection from bullies, and she's told there's no room for cards in this house, you get out there and deal with it when a child natural fear is not acceptable when a child's desire for help is not acceptable when the child's natural anger is not acceptable the child's decision to make am I going to be authentic and be rejected by my parents or should I reject myself and be accepted by my parents by my parents while the tragic tension invariably gets resolved in favor of attachment and a person adaptively suppresses their authenticity, but then that becomes a lifelong paradigm, and we live out of a fun sense of self. We don't know what we feel. We dare not ask for help. Um, We dare not say no to the demands of the world, and that makes us sick. So that's what the tragic tension is. And a lot of people, when they get sick, they actually learn to be themselves, and when they do, not just as documented by myself, but by others as well, there's a much better chance for health.
0: Yeah, I think this is why you write that uh, m- the personality traits we come to believe are us and perhaps even take pride and actually bear the scars of where we lost connection to ourselves. I'm going to stop there. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.